Yeah, he is very confused. What on earth is that on the top of your head? The headphones? No. The on top of my head. Yeah. What what, what is you... the co- what is the covering? Yes, hair. Yeah. Yeah. And what what color would you say that currently this is? This is a very special color that you can only get L'Oreal making. It's called Midlife Crisis. It's a lovely color. It really is. Has this not come around about six months prematurely for you, it's this frosting of your tits? It's, 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 it's the Phil, Phil Neville's hair. When he, he, he had oh. lovely streets hair. It's, it's the film. It's my, my homage to Phil Neville. C- circa mid-90s, 2002. Mid-90s, is it early? Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Is this because so many people <sighs> send us pictures of Chinch in his Heyday. Yeah. So these set when these menu that? Twitter it, feed. It, so just for everybody, Stephen had to do the inverted commas there for the heyday. Heyday. Just when so if, that we know. And, and in those pictures, you very often uh, not only are you wearing very very short shorts, but you have incredibly blonde hair. Is, is are you trying to recapture your youth in that regard? Is, is that what men approaching fifty tend to do? It's a lot cheaper than no. a red sports car. Can I? Can I? Can we just describe? We're gonna have to take a photo of this and put it on the set piece menu Twitter. Why? I, I want to describe what Chinch currently um, is wearing atop his head and on his person. So we've got peroxide blonde tips. They're not peroxide blonde, are they? Yeah. They're hints of sundown. Which with <laughs> hints of sundown? <laughs> plus a, a mild tan achieved either through no. going to Portugal or just being outside. Outside. Then the grey hair of the beard. Yes. So the grey hair completely clashes with the tip. Which was exactly what I wanted, was the look I was going for. So we've got three colours already. The fourth colour is a tie-dye pink and blue salsa jeans t-shirt. Predominantly pink, but, but washed incorrectly probably, rather than actually having a tie-dye No, effect. this is how it's meant to look. And then, then blue... Blue shorts, which are a little short, but still at least not 1986. Shorts tend to be short. short. Um, and uh, and then and then a myriad tattoos. Yes. And your ankle socks. Y- yes, to go with my super dry trainers. You are. <laughs> he's festival ready. He's, no, I think he's he's ready to play his part as an extra in a surfing movie from circa 1989. Point Break. Were you in Point Break two? I sh- I should have been. Yes. What did? You, you're not the kind of person who has a midlife crisis. What's wrong with you? Is this is this do, is it that obvious? Look, if they if they remake Point Break again, yes. we can throw Chinch out of a plane uh, without a parachute. I, I would genuinely, <laughs> I, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about your mental state. Really? Yeah. I thought it was something. Have you been for a few weeks? Well, uh, yeah, because I've not seen you guys. Yeah, is the, it's tough. You've fallen off yeah. the proverbial midlife crisis cliff I because do, you've not no, spent enough time with us. I do go a bit crazy when the season finishes at the end of May. I do go a bit crackers. You know, about when there's no work on and my brain hasn't anything to do, I tend to get do silly things. So you fill your life with stupidity with crises but yeah. you've got to be on television within a month I am begging you to retain this look for the first weekend of the season I was so going to go where, 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 where are you the first weekend of the season uh, I will be I've got two matches Reading against Derby then I've got Leeds against Stokes I've got two games in three days this bleach blonde look turning up at the Medeski but the, but the, the, wondrous but the problem is the juxtaposition will be formal you'll be wearing a suit yes and you'll have stupid hair this is no 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 it, no, no, it no, works no. with a tie-dye t-shirt no. that I used to wear when I was 14 and got mopped for but but with a suit stupid hair 
Roberta, my Portuguese hair technician, <laughs> will be mortified you've called it that. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We have only been away from you for a week and a bit, but we've been away from each other a little longer. However, around my dinner table, a reunion has taken place over a chicken and gammon pie from the Albion farm shop in Delft. Not Delphi in Greece, where the Oracle is, but Delft in Oldham, where the farm shop is. Not Fabian Delft. Not Fabian Delft. Um, Fabian Delft. He's been busy, though, hasn't he? To be fair, I don't think he could supply us. It's not a full reunion, though, because Andy is at least a sandwich short of a picnic, as his hair <laughs> testifies. But also that Rory has gone from spending a month away without his family to spending a month away with his family, passing through Manchester for a number of hours only before heading off to Italy for a much-needed holiday. That holiday is much needed by his wife, Kate. Uh, but fear not, because via the incredible powers of telephonic recording and complimentary Wi-Fi, we will still be hearing from Rory over the next few pods, we hope. So with that in mind, with me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, who thought Argentina would win the World Cup and that he'd be forced to watch Iceland against Croatia on the small screen because Katie called dibs on the big tally for the other game. Did that happen? I am delighted to say that I retained full control of the remote throughout the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> something that nobody predicted and Andy Hinchcliffe who thought that Senegal oh, so close oh, close and Australia would reach the knockout stages thanks to a big goal against Peru from a hairy koala that koala let me down badly that, that is still with the benefit of hindsight more likely to have happened than Senegal winning the World Cup <laughs> oh please oh by the way Mo Salah didn't two foot Igor Shatov either during the Greek uh, game look at the tournament Egypt had those were some of our suggestions you may well remember in our world beating game of I can't believe that's happened um, and thank you to all those people by the way who tweeted and emailed us reminders of what we had said and pointing out how wrong we were uh, keep your correspondence coming in to setpiece menu and setpiece menu at gmail.com find us via email or indeed on twitter there were some nice messages though yeah. uh, about our summer series on the people we think might have helped shape modern football so thank you for them also thank you to the newest spm buffalo jeff bogle Head to at OWTK on Twitter to find out why. I should also say that we've had a lot of great pod subject suggestions over the summer, so hopefully we'll be able to get to some of them very soon. None of those subjects, by the way, would make very much of a good Dennis Quaid movie. But um, that is where Dennis we will... Quaid again. That is where we will leave Dennis. Give it up. The Quaid thing now. had quite a bit more mileage than I think we anticipated. <laughs> quite a bit more mileage is a flick. <laughs> <laughs> also coming up, and here's the first opportunity that we've had to say this, the return of the SPM... PL, PL. Best man, Billy, I can tell you right now at this very moment is working hard with spreadsheets and algorithms to get it up and running for you in time for its launch in the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, in contrast with our obvious lack of foresight that has been on display not only last season in the SPM, PL, PL, uh, but also over the last four weeks, we are going to attempt a bit of hindsight now because our first pod since the World Cup is a special World Cup edition of I can't believe that happened. Mm. Whether it was the pre-tournament preconceptions about what might happen on the field or concerns about what might happen off it too, the 2018 World Cup had something of an ability to surprise. So, genuinely, I can't believe that happened. Although we begin with the ending. Were we surprised about France winning the World Cup? We, we can't be surprised. They were the best equipped team, I'd say, to win the competition. Belgium, I felt, were the best team the most exciting team but France, the one that had the great moments yeah I just think they were more exciting to watch 
but France, if you if you as a as a player could pick a team or a squad to be involved in that would give you the best chance of winning the competition. It's easy to say now, but this yeah. is why hindsight's wonderful and why we're really good at it. Excellent. Um, Brazil or France would have been probably the pick. And yeah, I'm no, it's no surprise really France have, have, have won it with the players they It have. goes to show how stacked that side of the draw was as well. Yeah. The three best teams that yeah. you just mentioned, they're all in one side of the draw. But did it, did it feel like the reason that a lot of people didn't necessarily predict that France would win it just felt like a bit of a boring choice to, to pick France because they had the best players and all of those players that they left at home felt like a, a bit underwhelming. So I wonder if that's, if that's why a lot of people didn't all convene on the same side of the debate and say France. Yeah. Well, in terms of the players left at home, there was the suggestion that wrong decisions had been made or that that would cause some kind of friction within the squad and that with some of the, the players they did select being perhaps uh, a little bit younger than their peak years, had this World Cup come a little bit too soon for them and would be, be talking about them as being favourites in Qatar in 2022. But it, it all came together for them and I agree with Chinch. Kind of any complaints that the best team clearly won the World Cup, the one that was best equipped to, to do whatever was required on a game-by-game basis to progress. And, and then they, they demonstrated that in the final against Croatia. And although they were a little bit at times methodical, it wasn't always exciting, they did put together a couple of the most thrilling performances of the World Cup. The, the game against Argentina was phenomenal. And I thought it was a great final as well against Croatia. But, that, but that's why they won it, the ability to, at certain points, and in the final, they had probably 15, 20 minutes really, where they took the game away from Croatia with the third and fourth yeah. goals. But when they needed to defend, defended really well thought Varane was absolutely fantastic Pavard was superb the whole back four actually played really well so you have to admire the fact that actually when the opposition put them under pressure they defended incre- incredibly well and when they were going forward and Bappe in particular was fantastic was great so they had everything that's why I say the best equipped team won the competition in having everything they only ever did enough that was the criticism they only had to of have them. to do enough exactly to, so to win if it, it yeah. meant that it was winning 1-0 and keeping yes. it tight they would do that but if it meant that they were playing against a team like Argentina they needed to score four in the end mm. there was a late goal for Argentina obviously but if, if they needed to score four they would score four yeah. as proved in the final as well and if you've got to play seven games at that level over the course of three and a half weeks you don't know whether you are going to get the luxury to rest players. You don't know whether injury is going to be a factor, fatigue. You know, why do more than you need to do? Why expend more energy to get things done? And Didier Deschamps deserves a huge amount of credit because, yes, there were accusations both before and during the tournament that he was an overly negative coach. But he's not only rallied those those players, he made the hard decisions in terms of squad selection. And he did all that with the spectre of Zinedine Zidane breathing down his neck. <laughs> and but, but every, also everything this... that he was criticised for beforehand ended up being something that helped France to win. Yeah. O- overly pragmatic or overly defensive. And in the times that they needed to be, they did it because of his ability to, yeah. to get them to do enough. But you have to admire as well that this team hasn't peaked yet. As you mentioned there yeah. about the youth that's in that side, there's lots of experience as well, good balance. That's why they won this competition, but they, they are going to be a lot better in four years' time and will be red hot for it. And they're, they're, the way that they play might adapt again. But again, if they do what they've done in this competition in four years' time, they'll go very close to winning it again. France winning that final in that way, mm. um, for, for a lot of people, it was a bit of a shame because the idea of Croatia winning was very much the romantics choice. Would that have reflected the tournament more if Croatia had won it? Well, Presumably, did, did, yes. does it matter that yes. Croatia didn't win it and France, the, the more pragmatic side, even though those, those, those goals, particularly the, the Pogba and the Mbappe goals, yeah. were lovely goals um, and befitting a final, but mm. do, do, does it still kind of leave a little bit 
left unsaid of this tournament? I, I still think the way that Croatia played in the final, that's probably the best that they played during the pandemic. Argentina played very well in that, played a lot of counter-attacking football, but they, they were arguably the better team, in inverted commas, in the final, but you still got to win it. They were very unlucky as well with the, the penalty decision. I thought that was incredibly harsh. That changed the, the kind of context of the game when they went behind in such a fashion, it really did knock them. Um, but, but they played incredibly well, so that really epitomised how a lot of the, not as if they were kind of a, a nation that no one expected to do reasonably well, but a nation that no one would have maybe picked to actually win the competition. They gave it absolutely everything and did play really well. So that kind of epitomised lots of teams like Japan and England within the competition. But still, to score four goals in the final against a Croatia side playing well, you, you can't really take it away from France. Yeah, that, that's why I still believe they, they, they deserve to win. And we had enough storylines in the World Cup to not need that final perhaps to go the way of the the, the, the storyline because of what happened before because of yeah. enough had happened yeah. before yeah there was there was enough chaos throughout the, the four <laughs> weeks for us to have a little bit of calmness at the end and, and look you know Croatia brilliant as they were they had the outstanding player of the tournament in Luka Modric but they, they rode their luck a little bit to get to the final mm. didn't they you know they, they came through extra time on three occasions twice going all the way to penalty, sh- to, to penalty kicks as well and you know luck deserted them obviously with a couple of decisions in the final and perhaps fatigue was, was a factor in, in that spell that 10-15 that minute spell when they just got blown away by France do we, do, do we think it was a good tournament because the final helped it to become a good tournament there are so many tournaments in the past that have done well up until the final yeah. perhaps 1994 uh, I always remember watching late night games where you know Romania beating Argentina and shocks goals Bulgaria getting to the semi-finals this is you know incredibly exciting until the final which was terrible yeah. nil-nil and Baggio missed the penalty but because we had a final with drama talking points six goals two good teams that, that, that felt like it capped it off nicely to make it an even better tournament. You, you are left with a happier taste in your there, mouth. There's not really any part of the tournament you can pick holes in. From the very first group games, which I thought, well, normally they're going to be very tight, teams aren't going to want to lose. From the first kick, every team tried to win every game. No matter how good they were, they genuinely tried to win. So that was really refreshing to see that. So normally you're right, you have either a great competition and a poor final, or a poor competition but a great memorable final. We or got a poor we competition got, and a poor four, final. Four, we, but we got both <laughs> in this one. We've got a memorable final. 2018, you'll always remember the six goals in a World Cup yeah. final. But you'll also remember, oh, remember that with England? Remember that with Japan? Remember that? There's always, there's so much running through the competition that it, it, the whole thing to me, and I was lucky enough to sit back and uh, first time ever really not working it and watching it I really enjoyed virtually every game that I saw and I saw a hell of a lot of matches and really enjoyed the application and the approach of virtually every team to try and win every game that they played. I can't remember a World Cup where that has happened because normally they're so guarded, they don't want to lose, they don't want to risk winning. Exactly. There was no trepidation. Yeah. All of the, especially the first round of fixtures, teams went for it. Yeah, there was some teams that were ill-equipped yeah. to be at the World Cup, as there, as there always is. Just getting but to the final tournament exactly to is, there, is, yeah. is a great achievement in itself. But, you know, the hosts, Russia, of course, were a big part of the, the positive narrative around the World Cup because them doing well, going further than anyone would have possibly imagined helped... You know, if you've got a host nation doing well, that helps a World yeah. Cup. And if they're doing it, scoring goals, you know, not, not doing it in a fashion that's entertaining, mm. 
that that contributes as well. Yeah, there are, of course, one or two doubts, as always, surrounding uh, Russia when uh, when they excel at sport. But <laughs> I thought, you know, I, I thought it was but even that wasn't the storyline, and, yeah, and, and, and cynics would have predicted that it might have been. But I just wonder whether we we see it as a, a kind of changing of the guard tournament, where we all presumed it was going to be Messi and Neymar and Ronaldo that would drag their teams all the way to the finals, and it'd be glory for them individually. This seemed more of a, even though Mbappe was fantastic yeah. and he's a pick-out player for France, and Modric was superb for Croatia. It did seem as if this was a tournament for the team yeah. to be successful is that a change from maybe the last couple of World Cups Mind you, Germany as a, as a team were very strong when they won the competition as well there wasn't maybe there was individuals but not to the degree of Messi and, and Ronaldo in that German side so maybe are we starting to see where the team is prevailing more than individuals now we just don't have those individuals anymore yeah well maybe Germany were a bit complacent and, and they had one or two vulnerabilities that because other nations were able to to work as a unit to exploit those is is where what you would normally expect from Germany is that you know the collective rather than the individual did a real job through. Yeah, them, I mean, yeah, Mexico tore them apart in that yeah, opening yeah. group game. They should have been three or four nil up at half time. Yeah, I, I I think we we have seen it. We've got a demonstration. It will be interesting to see whether it's a pattern that continues in major tournaments going forward. That maybe as other parts of the world catch up in terms of technique and physicality that that the team becomes or coaching. Even more, or, okay, and yeah. coaching as well becomes even more significant and that, that, that as we've seen with Messi and Ronaldo and Neymar that is it's increasingly difficult for those outstanding individuals to, to drag their team through a tournament in the way that Diego Maradona did with Argentina in in 1986 I, I think Brazil made a mistake in assuming that Neymar would be able to perform miracles where they that, that seemed to be their tactic and it just wasn't going to work but, because teams could do a job on Neymar. But even then, we had a couple of flashes from Neymar. We had the goal against Nigeria yeah. from Messi. We had the Ronaldo game against Spain. So those individuals still will still remember those individuals oh, yeah. in this tournament, even though they didn't have the huge effect that we thought they would. You st- they they yeah. still played a part and showed how individually they, brilliant they are. I, I wonder if that, yes, that, that will be remembered as being something of a valedictory, a, a, like a dying ember, yeah. if you like, yeah. of that period. I appreciate Neymar's a lot younger so that might be a slightly different debate but with Ronaldo and Messi what was interesting is that they did it earlier on in the tournament and then the tournament survived without them they both went out of course on the same day as well and so maybe your changing of the guard is not only individuals not only teams but also individuals so um, you mentioned Mbappe that there is there is a need sometimes isn't there to, to pin a world cup on somebody's back and had it been Croatia, it probably would have been Luka Modric. But because it was France, it was Kylian Mbappe. His best game was probably against Argentina, not in the final, even though he scored in the final. But because he scored in the final, it's very easy afterwards to say, everybody, oh, this will be the World Cup where everybody remembers that Kylian Mbappe came to the mainstream consciousness. We, yeah. We've been seeing him for the last two years. We know how good he is. But mm-hmm. there is that element, isn't there, that, yeah. that when it's on BBC One and ITV, a new player can break through and you can remember that World Cup distill it down to that player which probably is unfair because because I still feel they were yes and 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 actually they they gained more success having slightly sidelined Kylian Mbappe because he started down the middle and then uh, Giroud came in and he moved out to the right hand side so they they felt that actually hang on a minute we can't focus too much on Mbappe trying to put him in the position that we want we need to remember the team and get him to service the team in the way that he can and that made France better so Yes, it is a change of the guard of the individuals, but team-wise, you, you think that there is, there is a sense where Ronaldo and Messi will not drag their teams to finals anymore. No, no, like it, they it did didn't in, happen. In 2014 but I still think Mbappe and, and uh, Modric were still great individual players, but very much within a team structure. They, they, they understood 
their roles as team players. It wasn't just about me being the star. I have to be the one that scores the goals that gets us through to the next round. They, I'm sure, would have been quite happy to play their part and still be recognised as great individuals, which I think is, is as, a, as a team, that's probably what you would want if you achieve success. And people just say, well, it's just because of Mbappé or it's just because of Modric. I, I don't feel that France's success or Croatia's was just about those two players. It was very much the team ethic. The difference between Brazil and France was that the Brazil attitude seemed to be just give the ball to Neymar yes, anywhere under any yes. circumstances yeah. and he'll do something miraculous. All, Whereas all the, the France attitude was get ourselves set up to then be able to exploit with the best of Mbappe. Yes. Get him on the front foot before we give it was the ball like the, to him. The pitch that Brazil played on was tilted. So everything that attacked kind of fell towards <laughs> where it was. Yeah. Everything fell towards Coutinho and Neymar down the yeah. left-hand side. So is teams that were why saying, Neymar okay. was falling over? I think the angle uh, is, you know, it's he, a said, he tended to be falling up the hill rather than down. But anyway, that's my mind. He fell, but he fell both ways, didn't he? But that's what tended to happen. And teams would say, right, we know you're great players, but if we have five players dealing with you too, there's probably a fair chance that you're not going to get through us. So teams understood. And it was you could see the Brazilian players in possession. They, they were desperately trying to get the ball from every area of the pitch to Neymar to think he'll be the one that sorts us out. You didn't see that with France. You didn't see that with Croatia. Maybe that's why they were more successful. I'm wondering if actually the hair is some sort of homage to Neymar's original Whoa, spaghetti no, no. efforts at the beginning of the tournament. That was he, poor. He, he very quickly realised was a big mistake. But you, no, you stuck with it. Yeah, but my hair doesn't look like a plate of spaghetti on my head, does well, it? leave it for a couple more weeks. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's going to get cut, though. Yes. Uh, so we, we think that the World Cup has been particularly impressive in its in its ability to entertain and to provide a little bit of drama. The winner was satisfactory. There are enough storylines. There are enough big players doing big things, and there are perhaps new players. But Small nations like Croatia and it, England doing quite well. It seems to me that there's kind of less quality, but that dragged the whole the level of the whole tournament up so other teams could have a chance where in the past we've seen four or five teams just completely dominate and games are no contest every game seemed to be a genuine contest maybe because the quality was a little bit lower well as as we said at the outset today uh, our pre-world cup predictions didn't really stand up to much scrutiny but something that we did did. something we did talk about a couple of weeks before the world cup started as we sort of peered into our crystal ball was that you know, you know, much as the World Cup remains the the great footballing tournament that comes around once every four years, in terms of quality, yeah. it now sits quite comfortably underneath the Champions League. The, yes, that, that's true. where yes, yeah. the very best football is played. I think we, we, and that has been demonstrated again. But the World Cup sort of fought back, I felt, mm. in Russia in terms of being entertaining, being less predictable. And, and mattering to so yeah. many more people. It's like watching the Championship compared to the Premier League in England. You don't get the quality, but you get more stories, more excitement, more goals, more mistakes, because the quality level is a little bit lower. Maybe that's yeah. what we saw in, in, and, in Russia. And teams need to be greater than the sum of their parts. Yes. And, and, if yeah. they, and as, as you see with the Championship, it's not necessarily the team with the best players that wins. No or even gets promoted, that no. very often a team can come from the middle of the pack and they get it, they get it together for a season and, and get themselves up into the Premier yeah. League. What about, what about the geographical spread of teams? Bearing in mind it's going to go from 32 to a lot bigger. Um, How big are we? Is it 48? 48, 48. in 2026, as, as, as far as the plans are, I think, at the moment. But Can you imagine having 16 teams this, worse than Panama? Yeah, but is this World, World Cup, Cup because of how maybe Japan have done, how England have done how Russia have done. Is that is that going to fuel the need to let's bring more teams into it because the, well, the smaller than England, the smaller nations have, have, have achieved last, so much. It's the last World Cup that will be like this. So yeah. I, I imagine that in four and 
eight years' time, we'll be looking back very fondly on this, yeah. on this particular World yeah. Cup. And, and by the way, we've mentioned England a few times in passing. We will do a special uh, pod next week on the England story at the World Cup, everything that happened out in Russia and, of course, back in, in England as well. Has it come home yet? Um, no, still waiting. Still ah, waiting. Although, okay. strictly speaking, the World Cup has gone home because, of course, it was Jules Rimet. Who's of a French course. Uh, yes, it is, it yes. is coming home. It's just prolonging its holiday. Is it? Okay, yeah. 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 It uh, got, yeah. got the tokens from the sun. It likes the hotel that much. It's going to stay on. It's it got as far as Paris, but thought, you know what? I can cope with this for a couple of years. <laughs> just, I've run out of money. Um, what, about, what about the geographical spread of teams? In the last 16, only five weren't from Europe, which suggests a, a dominance that would then, you would imagine, prompt an argument to say, well, OK, we do need more teams in there to be able to dilute that European dominance. But that's a rare thing because you will often have other teams you would normally expect to be there from, even from North America, but certainly from South America and potentially Central America as well. Well, for the first time in 36 years, and Africa. Since, since the 82 World Cup, no African teams got out of the group stage. That's because yeah. Chinch picked Senegal Senegal should have done, though. That well, was, that done. was, that's the cruelest part They should of the have played a little bit fairer, Chinch. That, yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Or scored or a few scored more goals. Or scored a goal. That would probably if have helped. If only them. they had received fewer peroxide-tipped cards. Yes. They would have been Yellow? safe. No, 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 lemon. <laughs> oh, lemon. Lemon cards. Lemon cards. <laughs> I, I think that the, the, the expansion of the World Cup, which unfortunately is inevitable, is not going to improve the tournament. We saw that when they expanded the, the Euros uh, between 2012 and 2016. 2012 was a far superior tournament than 2016. Yes, we had one or two lovely stories about nations qualifying for a major tournament, either for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And yes, that is great for those nations involved. But you get that anyway with the World Cup. We had Panama this time. We had Peru for the first time in a long time. We had the likes of Saudi Arabia and Iran. We had peripheral footballing nations were involved at the major international football tournament. We don't need to generate that narrative from somewhere. It happens on its own. It might only be two, three, four teams a time, but that is all you need. And as has been demonstrated with the likes of Italy and Holland and the United States not qualifying for the World Cup, it's good to have an element of jeopardy about qualifying. You don't want there to be safe passage. Well, that's why it's there. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You might as well not bother and just say, you can all come along. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, the World Cup starts with qualifying it's qualifying for the World Cup every footballing nation in the world is involved in the World Cup at some point Mm. but what you get then with the finals is the is the creme de la creme and I don't think you know although we've had some great great stories in seeing those those either first time nations or first time in a long time nations that doesn't mean to say we need 16 more of those Mm. nations in eight years time when the World Cup is in, in North and Central America, it just it feels as though it's going to devalue the competition. And yeah, it will be great for those that get their opportunity, but those opportunities do come along. They might just not come along every four years. In terms of the European dominance of this competition, is, is that an offshoot of the very best South American players coming and playing in the European leagues? It's actually those the European players are training with the very best players at the very best clubs under the very best coaches. Is that why we've seen this kind of surge in European football at this particular World Cup, do you feel? Probably it's a combination, like everything, it's a combination of lots of different things. There are probably mitigating circumstances to a couple of world powers 
not being in the last well, Argentina day, were rubbish. Argentina, and Germany, France had a, uh, Germany had a Brazil. Sorry, had an overreliance on on Neymar. So th- yeah. there, are, I don't think it's just necessarily yeah, because okay. in a vacuum that that, that European teams yeah. are better, as, as well as the big nations that came up short. The lesser nations need to learn the same lesson in terms of getting yourselves organised because England and Croatia demonstrated that without having a vast array of individual talent, although Croatia had had a little bit more than England, they were able to get to the last four. They were able to punch well above their weight. So maybe those African nations that didn't make it through the group stage, and you know, think of Nigeria in particular, who always provide us with great flair and excitement when they come to a World Cup, but didn't never happen. quite live up to, to what they, they should be capable of. And Egypt, so much expected of Egypt. And yes, they were hampered by the, the injury to Mo Salah. But, you know, Tunisia, there were a lot of people before the World Cups, you know, saying that they were a dark horse to get through that England-Belgium group. And it, it never really looked like happening, did it? Mm-hmm. That perhaps nations all over the world, not just in Europe or, or outside of the, the traditional footballing powers, need to realise that if you can get yourselves organised and get the best out of your players and be well prepared for the World Cup, then that is going to give you a much greater chance of going deep into the competition than hoping that your one star player yes. of the generation yeah. can drag yeah. you through. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or you get a good group. Yeah. <laughs> that might be the other thing as well. So as we mentioned, that Rory is segueing straight from a month. Well, actually not segueing because that would be very difficult for him to go to Russia to Italy on a segway. Seg- segging... Segging. Could be a series in that. Michael Palin doesn't do it. Good Rory book. could do it. Good, Good book. book. Good follow up to Mister. <laughs> could be, couldn't it? Yeah. Mister to segue. Yeah. Uh, so he's segging musical musical terms to mean to go from one to the other yep. immediately without a gap. Uh, straight from a month at the World Cup into a month's holiday in Italy. But we will attempt to have him sprinkle himself over the next few shows, very much like that dye was sprinkled upon your hair. Chish. <laughs> uh, starting with right now, when we ask for the first time. Where are you, Rory? I am in Helsinki Airport. It's very exciting. Are you pleased to be coming home? Uh, yes, I am. I've had a really nice time at the World Cup. Uh, it's, um, I was very lucky to be able to go. Uh, Russia was very, uh, was really interesting and very friendly. Uh, but there does come a point after six weeks away from home where you want to see your dog again. <laughs> it's always the dog. I'm glad that the dog is getting the love that Hector so clearly deserves. The theme of our first conversation um, is that I can't believe that happened. Uh, so the question is, what surprised you about the World Cup, apart from perhaps your ability to launder your own clothes? Uh, I did launder my own clothes three times successfully uh, and learned the Russian alphabet, which is my other great triumph. Um, what surprised me? Well, I mean, I, the obvious answer is, is kind of seeing all the big teams fall, and that in, in the moment, I think that does surprise you, you know, when you see Russia beat Spain, and you see Sweden, uh, not Sweden, Sweden knock out Germany, effectively, the South Korea beat Germany, and, and Mexico beat Germany, and even Belgium beating Brazil, to an extent, was a bit of a surprise, but I think, I think in hindsight, we will look back on those as not being that shocking, if I'm completely honest, because I think international football now is so... Um, is so even because the smaller teams have got access to the best coaching, to the best tactics, to the most advanced sports science, all that stuff, that the gaps are, are, are much smaller than they are in the club game. And in fact, you wonder increasingly whether kind of international football is going to be the last bastion of unpredictability in, in football because the, in the Champions League, in the Premier League, in European leagues, 
we all know what's going to happen. You know, there are all these fans who will know already that their, their team is not going to win the lead. And I think what was great about the World Cup was that, and yeah, I, I guess it was unexpected. I wasn't expecting it to be quite so unpredictable and quite so chaotic. So I'd say that. So I can't believe that it was quite as chaotic as it was. Um, I can't believe that England... I did, England's, England's World Cup was weird. It was a really weird World <laughs> Cup, and I, I can't quite work out what, where I stand on it in terms of it felt like it was really successful, and at the same time, they won three, drew one, and lost three, uh, which isn't that successful. Um, I can't believe that Japan won, uh, got through in that group. I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that Croatia got to the final and were the most memorable team. Uh, that would, I would say that they they will be the team that lives longest in my memory. The final was strange, wasn't it, Rory? Because up until Pogba and Mbappe sealing their places as incredibly important international superstars. France were in danger of winning a World Cup final in which they were by no means the story. Yeah, they weren't. I was, I, I was actually quite angry at half-time because <laughs> partly because I, I, I disagreed with some of the two decisions that had put Croatia behind, but also because it, it's, it's really hard journalistically to, to write about... Because you, you know you have to be... Pra- if France win the World Cup, however win the, they win the World Cup, you have to be really praising of them. But France had done nothing to praise at half-time. And that, that six minutes where, where Pogba and Mbappe scored, and it kind of just sort of served as a kind of reminder of, look, this, this is how good this team could be. Um, that, that kind of saved that World Cup final from just being kind of free of logic and narrative, which I think would have been really disappointing. Um, it, did, it still felt like it was a slightly inappropriate final for for the tournament in a way because it's been such a chaotic tournament and such a kind of compelling tournament and then the final was just this weird game where France managed to kind of win 4-2 without really being the better team or without really kind of impressing and I I think the the way that that feels now looking back on it is that 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 is a measure of how good they were that they could win the World Cup without really getting out of third gear which is amazing and kind of frightening because of what they could be and at the same time you can't judge a team from what you feel they ought to be you just have to judge them for what they are and what France are is a team that plays for 10-15 minutes a game gets a lead and doesn't give it up I thought the Croats did amazingly well to I think the, I mean, the Croats really pushed them they you know they, they gave them far more of a challenge than anybody else had they refused to fold and that was really impressive and that I think kind of saved the game the fact that the Croats just just kept going and you know when Mandzukic gets the second there was part of you that thought, right, if you can get third now in the next five minutes, then France will wobble. Um, and sadly, they didn't, and they, they kind of they couldn't pitch another way through. But France has been the, by far the most kind of complete team in that tournament, and they're the only ones that haven't been as vulnerable as everybody else. And I think that is what deserves, means they deserve their victory. I think the most significant question to ask you about the final, Rory, is how wet did you get? Not wet at all. The photographers got extraordinarily wet, and it was hilarious. The journalists were very dry, and that's that's important. The journalists remained dry. It was a bit. It was. It did feel like a really sort of biblical final because you had like the VAR thing, which obviously there was going to be a VAR thing. Like we, the VAR, VAR had gone quiet, and it's when VAR's quiet that it's most dangerous, like a snake or a crocodile. It's waiting in the water, ready to snap, and then VAR comes out, and you get VAR'd. But then you had that rainstorm and. The thunder had been building for like an hour, and it, you just heard the, hear, hear these rumbles and see these occasional cracks of lightning. And I was sort of starting to think, well, remember the game in 2012 that got called off or delayed for an hour, France against someone in Euro 2012? The same day that England played Ukraine? Yeah, I think it must have been France-Sweden. I think it must have been France-Sweden, but I'm prepared to be wrong. But that, I was starting to think, well, 
what do they do if this get if this like gets worse? Because either the pitch gets sodden and they have to do something to drain it, or if there's lightning, I think they have to take the players off the pitch. If there's forward lightning, they they could theoretically get struck, uh, and that would have been unprecedented. But then you had the pussy riot pitch invasion, and it all felt really kind of dramatic, and it was this big sort of wheeling plot line that just kept switching and turning, and and that that was really appropriate given how. Yeah, absorbing this whole World Cup has been. So perhaps um, it was yeah. it was more chaotic than you thought. That a chaotic ending to a chaotic World Cup. Well, it was it, it, the World Cup was chaotic in a good way. The final was probably chaotic in not not quite as good a way. Right. You know what I mean? It was it was fun, um, but it was the, the chaos in the World Cup was was what gave it its magic. And I'm always a bit reticent to sort of start saying things are the best or the worst or whatever, because everyone thinks everything's the best and the worst, and then something else comes on and they say, well, that's the best. It's very annoying. It's as I approach middle age here. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 it really was a good World Cup. I, I think it's certainly better than Brazil and South Africa. I remember Germany as being quite good in 2006. Then if you look through the results, they were all really boring. Um, and it may be that you have to go back to, like, France 98, uh, to to find a, a tournament that was as good as that one. Um, the one thing it, it lacked was a, was like a truly world class team. I don't think that tournament will be this France team's defining performance. They will go into either the Euro, Euro twenty twenty or the twenty twenty two World Cup, and that is where they will be judged as, as to how good they can be. Because you know, if you look at them, they should get better because they're all really young, you take Giroud out, you should have someone that you can, you know, there's people like Dembélé that you can, or Thomas Lamar, who you can put in, switch things around, maybe play them back through the middle, they should get better. So this felt like the start of an era form, rather than the culmination of it. And that just means that I don't think this, it's not like with Germany where they've been building to it, or with Spain where they've been building to it. This feels like they have won the World Cup and they're going to go, right, let's see what we can do now. We were very wrong with a lot of our pre-tournament um predictions even though we didn't really necessarily take any of them seriously but we thought that the group stage might follow a normal group stage and be a bit dull and everybody would be very cautious but actually the freedom uh, particularly shown by those teams who you expect to normally be cautious because they wouldn't have any chance should the game open up uh, was quite refreshing I wonder if it's refreshing because they know that they're going to qualify every time because they tend to be teams who are capable of uh, topping their qualifying group without really that much uh, difficulty. And also, the other thing, which actually you were right about, is the homogenising of football and how it all seems to be now um, as one. The distinctive elements have disappeared. So so maybe we're, in being right about something, we were actually wrong about something else. Well, do you know what? I think I was, I, I think I was slightly wrong about that. I think that's broadly true. But I think there were flashes of kind of indigenous cultures that have survived and are flourishing and and have just gave it that little bit of mix and magic. I think Mexico were really, really good. And it's a shame they lost that group because I think Mexico-England in the quarterfinals would have been a really interesting game and would have been a, a much better quarterfinal than Sweden-England. Um, I think South Korea a little bit, Japan a little bit. They, they all kind of, even like Morocco, who didn't get through, and Iran, in fact, who didn't get through. Um, I thought they all kind of suggested that there is life outside the the big five leads. There, are, there is there is a whole world out there uh, that is that is kind of doing its own thing. The other twenty seven teams, I would say, are broadly homogenous, and the, the general approach is the same for everybody. It's sit, wait, counter. That's what happens now. But there were little flashes that gave me gave me encouragement that maybe 
you know, maybe in 2022 or 2026 when the entire world gets to play in the World Cup, that you, you, we will see kind of a couple of teams that just do something that you don't see. And, and that's kind of what always made the World Cup special. Um, and it's a shame that it's, it's diminished, but I think it's still surviving in patches. Final question to you on this edition of Set Piece Menu and our sub-subject, which is very catchy, where are you, Rory, is this. Your favourite team to watch and also your favourite Moscow airport. Uh, favourite Moscow airport is Sheremetyevo because there is an Uzbek restaurant there that does the world's best bread. Uh, I'm going to learn how to make it, Hugh, and serve it. I'm going to serve it to you when I, when I return. Uh, favourite team to watch... Belgium when they got going, Belgium on the counter were amazing, like genuinely amazing to watch. But do you know what, Argentina, just as they did everything at such a sort of frenzied pitch of emotion, and they were clearly objectively terrible, but you, there, was, there was just so much kind of craziness to Argentina that it, you couldn't tear your eyes away, and it, that, that, made them, that made them great entertainment rather than a great team. Um, you, you, don't, you don't need to ask me who the best team was, because the best team won the tournament. Um, but the funnest, the, the most fun team to, to kind of be near and to watch and to think about was Argentina because you just, they make no sense. The whole thing makes no sense. Rory Smith, everyone, making no sense of the World Cup, which is always really helpful when you give them a call at Helsinki Airport to try and make some sort of sense of it. I can't wait for that bread, though, Steve. Well, it oh. sounded to me like he was only making it for Hugh. I don't know oh, what we're yeah. eating. Really? He named it. He's saying pretty specifically. Oh, it's like that, is it? Yeah. Really oh. specific. It's for Hugh. Okay. I get some of the Uzbek bread. You guys get nothing. Warburton's. Mm. <laughs> um, Rory um, conjugated an interesting verb which, as a, as a classics literate person, he'll enjoy the fact that I just used the word conjugated, conjugated. probably incorrectly. Mm. Um, but he said vard, um, which <laughs> brings us to um, <laughs> probably the most passionate and also final part of our conversation on this week's set piece. We've menu. got to try and get through this without chinch swearing. I won't swear. Yes, I please won't. do not swear. Oh. Um, to be vard, I wonder what that would uh, eventually say in the English, uh, the Oxford English dic- Dictionary. To be vard, I, I, and particularly Steve, and any moments that I got to broadcast on any sort of national networks over the last uh, five weeks or so, have been dominated either on air or off air to people who would be willing to listen. Which, by the end of it, had dwindled significantly. Yes. I actually got a text off my brother one morning on his way to work, asking me why Hugh had been given a 15-minute special segment on Five Live Breakfast to rant about VAR during the World Cup. Well, like, like I say, that it had dwindled to Steve's brother. Yes. Um, I uh, had an opportunity to co-present uh, Five Live Breakfast, which is my opportunity to drop that in mm. um, without spending too much time talking about it or focusing on it or making it a big deal that I dropped it in uh, with Nicky Campbell. And essentially... You and Nicky Campbell... Yeah, yeah, so five. Ah, and okay. what was interesting, it was the day after the Portugal against Iran game, which was dominated by discussions during and after of VAR. And my issue the following morning was is that everybody, including Robbie Savage, who had a lot to contribute, and that's fine, mm. but he was one of those um, who said that it was an example of how VAR didn't work and therefore it should be scrapped. Uh, my counterpoint, um, which try to reach the light of day in amongst a lot of savage was that <laughs> VAR was not the culprit for a farcical match of football. No. The culprit was a farcical referee. Yes. Yes. And yes. the whole particularly the group stages where where people were getting getting used to it, coming to terms with what VAR was 
the whole way that the debate was framed was infuriating. VAR has done this. VAR has done that. VAR has ruined this game. The VAR made the decision, which is another infuriating VAR thing. VAR doesn't do anything. I can't, I can't believe he's not gone to VAR. What? Now, this, uh, I think the first penalty um, that had VAR, uh, VAR elements was France, France against Australia. Australia. And even though I'm going to call them out, and I'm sorry because I work alongside them, the BBC Sport website had in their second paragraph of copy, the VAR awarded the penalty. No! That is the reason why <sighs> not only we are having an argument about it now, but also why everybody has got the wrong end of it because too much of the coverage of it was being provided by people who did not understand how VAR worked, including the national broadcasters on the BBC and on ITV on the televisual match coverage, which is where you come in, Chinch, because that is the role of a co-commentator and a commentator to know the rules to a sufficient degree that the wrong information is not disseminated to the millions and millions and millions of people watching. I will pause. I will allow other people to say the same thing. Well, would you not think if you're covering matches and VAR, the system is being used, you would probably want to understand how it works because you're probably going to have to explain or be part of the conversation when VAR is used. The players were even appealing to referees to go to VAR. It doesn't work like that. The pundits were saying... Any drawing a box in the sky by a footballer shouldn't be a yellow card for unsporting mis- oh. unsporting conduct. It should be a yellow card for sheer stupidity. <laughs> it's ref- the referees, the, the, the judgment still lies with the referee. All the VAR does is says to the referee, have a look at this again, and, and you probably haven't have seen it, but then it's your judgment on what has happened. The VAR don't judge anything. But how, as the tournament went on, it went on for quite a long time. Yet the mistakes were still being made. Oh, he's got to go to VAR there, the referee. It Including doesn't work. One, this one is occasion, the quarterfinals. One occasion when Rio Ferdinand said in the studio, oh. I don't understand why he doesn't go to VAR to have a look because at that. Because that's not how it works, it's not, Rio. It's not how it works, Rio. And, and, and the problem is, there are too many instances where that was not challenged. There was one occasion where Mark Lawrenson, God bless him, tremendous man, but he was... Entering into the tournament was such a negative outlook on VAR that everything that happened was being framed again in a negative light. So, for example, there was a penalty that was reviewed by the on-field referee via VAR and the delay from the moment when the incident happened and then the referee was contacted by the VAR and he blew up to stop the game was something like 10 to 12 seconds, which you have to say is fine because there is nothing significant that can happen in that time. I had an argument with another colleague at the BBC who said, but there could have been a goal in that time. You are changing the the game too much to allow that to happen and then bring it back. Genuinely speaking, one in a million, you might have a goal within 10 or 12 seconds, but it's not going to happen, apart from maybe the 5-1 derby in which you probably went I don't like to talk about that too much. And the the goal of the tournament, obviously, Mm. um, at the World Cup that we just watched. But in essence, Laura said, oh, that took forever. It didn't. It took 10 to 12 seconds. So if you're going into it thinking that it's not going to work, you're going to frame these arguments in the wrong Mm -hmm. way. And it was incredibly frustrating. And my final point on this, because I don't want to make it 50% of the podcast, is that it lasted all the way through until the final. 
And there wasn't very much in the knockout stages simply because we didn't have as much football. Yeah. There were 48 group games and they happen over two and a bit week period. So therefore, you've got three games a day sometimes, sometimes four. You're going to have more instances because yeah. there's more football. When it then kind of separated out, there was less to talk about because there were fewer matches. But then in the final, there is this instance where Alan Shearer says afterwards when he says and that the, the studio were all together, they said unilaterally that it was not a penalty. Yeah. Martin Keown on CoComs on the on ITV uh, on BBC rather said it was a penalty. Chris Waddle on Five Live said it was a penalty. So first of all, it's an abdication of responsibility. Gary Lineker should have said, "There are those who think it will be a penalty. Let's discuss that instead of just say it wasn't a penalty." But Alan Shearer's main point of view was that there had not been a clear and obvious error. Therefore, the decision should not have been changed. Well, again, that's got nothing to, to do, do with it. it. Yeah. The referee either hadn't seen, seen it, it. Exactly. so was seeing it for the first time and yeah. making his first judgment. So therefore, there wasn't a clear and obvious area for him to correct. Yeah. Or alternatively, his um, consideration of the rules, his subjective opinion on that instance, if he had seen it, was a clear and obvious error had been made. It's got absolutely nothing to do with it, what Alan Shearer thinks, beyond the fact that we're interested in his opinion yeah. and the subjectivity that we all have on those instances allows us to have the conversation, which, by the way, was everything that we did prior mm -hmm. to VAR being involved in the game, which is great and should never stop, and the human element remains that's fantastic. If it was happening without VAR, we'd be saying there should be VAR. Mm -hmm. That's the way that we that we tend to frame these arguments. But the clear and obvious error has got nothing to do with an Alan Shearer clear and obvious error. It is the on-field referee who's making that decision. And he felt either there was one or because he hadn't seen it, he was judging it for the first time and he thought it was a penalty. Whether you think it or not does not mean that the referee should agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we could fire up the DeLorean and <sighs> go back to better. the beginning of the World Cup... Whether you were pro the introduction of the video assistant referee system, which I think mainly collectively we were, or incredibly anti it, which of course there are still plenty of people who don't want to see it in the game, most people thought the World Cup wasn't the ideal time to introduce it. But you know what? I think the officials at the World Cup deserve a great deal of credit. Yes. Because I think generally it worked pretty well mm. and so those operating the system and, and the referees responsible for overseeing the, the games in which it was used deserve a great deal of credit. The mistakes generally came about through, well the mistakes did all come about due to human error. There were a couple of instances I can think of where, especially during the group stages, you wondered why the video assistant referee had not advised the referee that there was an incident that would bear a second look. For example, during England against Tunisia. Yes. Which yes, happened yes, early on. Corners, and Pierluigi yeah. Colina at the end yeah. of the group stage said that that is something that we corrected yes. after having a conversation with yeah. the VARs. The other mistakes were down to, and the one that immediately springs to mind, were both, to my mind, in the final, the, the handball um, that... that allowed France to take the lead from the penalty but spot. But the VAR worked, also, actually it worked in terms of saying to the referee, yeah, have another look at this. The system worked. The referee's judgment human error debate. Yeah. The other one was was the Iran-Portugal game, which proved decisive in the final round of, of group pitches. The, the penalty that was awarded for the, the, the handball decision against Cedric after the referee had initially waved it away. It was referees not being strong enough to stick with their on-field decision, which had people frothing at the mouth about the video assistant referee system. The great thing about the system is it's relatively foolproof. Mm -hmm. It's the people operating it who have a little bit of work and understanding, and that will come. 
That will come. The mistakes will gradually be eradicated. It needed to be introduced. It has been. The more people get used to it, the more that we will get closer to correct decisions being reached there is an almost argu- 100% of the time. There is an argument t- t- that is against VAR which says that it should not be at a World Cup where you say it will get better. It should be perfect before a World Cup. It will never be perfect because of the human element. Yeah. Yeah. And if there hadn't been VAR, those exact same people would have been saying, well, there should have been VAR. Mm. So I, I will not accept that argument. No. And, and do you know what? Look, we've all got used to it now. It was never, the system was never designed to be perfect. Nobody ever said every decision in football will now be correct. I can't believe Gianni Infantino has said that we'll never see a goal incorrectly ruled out or otherwise for, for offside because quite clearly we will. Gianni will get wobbly lines and misinterpretation of when the final touch of the ball was and stuff like that. Gianni's so, wobbly lines. Um, but, do you know, it, it worked really well. I, and, I, I and agree. The I more think we... I think yeah. it, it is difficult, you know, perhaps, with, again, with the benefit of hindsight, you'd have gone back as a, as a broadcaster to the very beginning of the tournament and you'd have said, right, viewers, game one, this is how the video assistant referee system works. But there was so much confusion and with so many different interpretations and so many people watching, it it became very difficult to nail down the rights and wrongs of it. But the broadcasters should have had the same briefing that the referees had when they were going to, they spent those two weeks in Italy learning. That that is is the criminal. They did not, they were not accurate in the way that they were telling the story and in doing so, they allowed uh, an inappropriate... Uh, conversation to take place and to fester it was it was wrong and listen I, I will disagree with a lot of the refereeing decisions that were made after consultation with the VAR that doesn't mean that VAR got no, them not wrong no got it right absolutely right yeah. the final's a classic example of that it did its job the referee should be the one who ultimately makes it whether he sees it or whether he sees it differently he's given them the and option the, to have a look at it again but they've been making then subjective it decisions since yes. dot year dot absolutely. that's what they're there for on. that's what they do in, in live play but also you're giving them the look that's the way and it, VAR has done it its job. If they're saying because that penalty was awarded, VAR has failed, that is complete rubbish. It's the referee's judgment that you should be saying, well, should he give that penalty or not? But he is best placed to make that decision. So that is what VAR is giving him, the, the, the ability to make a more informed decision because he's the man that, that should make it. Not, But people think in sitting in that, sit that VAR are making the decisions for the referees. They still think that now. And the pundits, that's what was so criminal, is that they're feeding into this by saying, oh, he should be going to... V-. No, it doesn't work like that. It's as if you, the referee is passing over um, officiating the game to somebody else and saying, well, I don't know what's happened. It's up to you to tell me what's happened. That is not the way that it works. And it didn't work like that all the way through the competition. Do you know how antiquated is the Premier League going to look next season not having the VAR and, system And people will be saying, oh, if you had VAR, you'd I'll tell you what out. was a brilliant example of it was in the Switzerland-Sweden game. It was right at the end of the game and Martin Olsen is clean through on goal. He gets challenged on the edge of the box. The referee gives a penalty. VAR intervenes and the, the initial contact was outside. It wasn't a penalty. It was a free kick and it worked absolutely brilliantly and was so obvious but Mark Lawrence still got it the wrong way round and then had to correct himself and say, oh, no, it's a, it's a brilliant decision. Sorry, VAR's got it right. And that was the perfect example of it working Brilliantly, the referee had come to the wrong conclusion, was advised to take a second look and then got the decision right, which is what VAR is meant to be there to provide. English football inadvertently is going to look like it's languishing behind the times again because we will have controversies throughout the season which could have simply been rectified Mm -hmm. by the system, which we've seen through the World Cup works pretty well Mm -hmm. most of the time. When England went out of the World Cup, uh, 
we watched it with the with friends from school and the kids were pretty upset about it they had really invested the, themselves in supporting England and, and really had enjoyed the run to the semi-finals and I tried to explain to them try and make them feel better look when I from my first World Cup 1986 England were knocked out of the tournament by a bloke punching the ball into the back <laughs> of the net this is a much better way to go out of the World Cup and the question straight back was who was the VAR? Really? <laughs> Seriously? So imagine we're going to get we're going to get twelve months of this now going forward. I imagine that we'll be able to uh, certainly, if I have anything to do with it, have another conversation about VAR, um, about what it might mean for for players and how they might modify their behaviour apart from drawing a TV in the sky which of course is ridiculous because the incident involving the first Diego Costa goal in the game against Portugal was yeah. interesting because Pepe tried to cheat tried to pretend he'd been elbowed it didn't work and so therefore to, in the future the players like Pepe who might be scurrilous like that they're going to get away with less they're going to get away with less yeah, and yeah. they will not attempt to get away with it because they know they're either not going to get away with it the referees oh, are more, get away with it. more likely to play <laughs> they, on and then, so and they then go back to see if yes. he was elbowed yes. and rule out the goal Yes. so he's either going to not be able to prevent a goal because he's not doing his job properly or or alternatively he's going to be proved to be a diver via VAR players, players it may well instill some honesty in the Although players it we've not seen with, in the, the last 10 years have we got time for any other business in this regard very, very briefly. Well, th- another thing is, why did we see players haranguing the referees so much at World Cup? That was a cu- as well as a pushing and shoving in the penalty area. That was one thing that VAR was supposed to do away with because there was somebody watching on the video that was clarifying whether the referee was right or wrong. He doesn't need players haranguing him. And the other thing, we do have to touch upon it, Hugh. Outswinging corners, Chinch. Oh, the yeah. big oh, no, winner no, no, of the no, World no, Cup. No, no, no. No, the going to be my epilogue. Let's get the facts and figures before you start bandying <laughs> away swinging corners at me. What the facts? I'm and sorry. Figures, as in, like they all were. No, that weren't all. You, you, you hate. The only thing you hate more than outswinging corners is driven or lofted balls in that have no swing whatsoever. You mean like the one that Harry Maguire scored from? That <laughs> yes, one. exactly. Yeah. Well, the, let's just ignore that. It didn't. It wasn't important goal, was it? We were inundated. The set piece menu, uh, the set piece menu, Twitterati did us proud. Right, every time, what, every gonna... time there was a goal from an outswinging corner, which was often during the course of this World Cup, we immediately were inundated like with May, messages. I'm going to change my House stance and say I will accept away swinging corners as long as they don't go further than eight yards away from the goal line, because <laughs> okay, that's what Kieran Trippier basically tried to do. Right, was drop the ball in between the six-yard box and the penalty spot. Well, it only takes so there we facts go. and the overwhelming power of facts, to, facts and evidence. to change your mind. That is very not 2018, so congratulations, Chief. Thanks. Um, we've just mentioned England there. We are going to, next week, uh, talk about England um, in, frankly, its entirety. We're going to talk about what happened on the field. We're going to talk particularly what happened off the field. And we're going to try and... Um, Ask ourselves whether football's coming home is a good idea or not. Are we going to boil it down in a big football pan? <laughs> yes. To Reduce get to the it. essence of Reduce England's it. world. Reduce it right down. It's going to simmer for at least 30 minutes. Yes. Uh, so that's to come next week. If you're wondering why we haven't talked about England yet, that is because we are going to be talking about uh, the narratives that surrounded England, surrounded England's fans, and everything that happened tactically. Uh, that's to come next week. So stand by. Hold your horses. We needed to keep ourselves back for one big full pod simmer. Between now and then... It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing days where apparently in-swinging corners were like really important with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. 
I, I was probably at my most consistently injured at Everton. <laughs> I was consistency was a big part of my career, but this mainly, will come as a shock to Sheffield Wednesday. Exactly. Well, actually, yes, I did peak at Sheffield Wednesday in the injury stakes, but at, at Everton, I had some lengthy injury spells and Les Helm was the kind of an old school spit and sawdust kind of physio not like the modern poncy ones with their tight tracksuit bottoms and all that Les was a, a proper physio his hands you know he'd been down the docks you know when he gave you a rub you really knew about it you we've heard about Les, Les you've heard about yeah. Les before well when the first team used to go out all the fit players used to go out and play the, the injured players were kind of left behind and we used to obviously do some fitness work in the gym, but Les was a, a big boxing fan. So we used to do a kind of, we had a heavy bag and we had like a speed ball. I don't know whether clubs have these now, but this is what we had. And we used I to do like, so. um, you know, you kind of do a bit of the rower for a minute, then you do the punch bag for a minute. So we did these kind of circuits. So it was always kind of four or five players injured, but you'd think that the players at a football club would be the epitome of fitness. But we had a guy who was basically the janitor at the training ground. <laughs> now he, we called him Dave Ash. But he was actually called Dave Ashes, but that's what football tends that, to do. That we is, that we gave a him a nickname, so we called him name. Ash or Dave Ash. Footballers now, are, are renowned for their he, ability to conjure up appropriate nicknames. Yeah, Ginch, and as he used to join in the circuits, and basically he was better, <laughs> stronger, faster than anybody else. And in the end, I think he did a lot of training himself. He's one of those lunatics. You know, you can just tell, can't you? They're just... Was he beefy? Too f- no, he wasn't. He was one of those kind of whippet, Lines. lean, but incredibly strong people that you'd probably pick on when you've had a few drinks, but they would probably kill you. You know, those type of people. <laughs> exactly the kind and of people who would succeed at gladiators in the mid-90s. Yes, yeah. they're deceptive. Perfect. Perfect. If you like bench press one and a half his body weight and all that type. So we used to have like bench competitions and stuff and Dave Ash would, would win them hands down and then like boxing competition and how long could you do and everything he was better at everything in the gym he used to then come up with exercises for us to do <laughs> and I'm thinking wait a minute he basically sweeps the floors <laughs> yet Les is saying come on in and take this oh, he only paid 7 million for Nick Barnby go and teach him how to box so, but would that happen these days? De- would you basically take someone who's cleaning the baths and sweeping the floors into the gym to then train, not just train with them, which is what he did, but then also come up with the, his own routines and for them to kick do? Their proverbial backsides. But he was, he was, he was incredibly, incredibly strong. I think I only ever once, you know, can you could you bench press? Would you know how to your own weight? Could you bench press? Uh, no. You don't think how much do you weigh in kilograms? Uh, about eighty-two. Well, I'm 95, so you, well, you're you 82 kilograms. Yeah. You, could, you could do one lift on a, on a bench press. Surely you could lift I've your I've never tried, but I, I'm well, sure maybe I we, would, on I've... One of the podcasts, maybe we should get a bench in. <laughs> get Dave Ash in. Steve, you know, you, you train. You must, would Hugh be able to bench press his own body weight, do you think? I don't think he'd be able to bench press a small child's body weight. Really? Most are of you deceptively are weak? But Dave, it was incredibly... <laughs> but I just thought, and it, it just struck me. At Man City's new training complex, do you think there's... Joe, the changing room, was saying to Kevin De Bruyne, "Come over here, Kevin. We'll do a few bench presses together." They'll did have you, a not sure that would probably consultant happen. Who's probably on about one point two million pounds a year? Did did, um, did Joe Royal or Willie, Willie Donachie not miss a trick and chuck uh, Dave Ash a ball at some point? To see <laughs> well, whether he was the capable of playing the one, th- midfield. the one thing he wouldn't do would I say, "Well, come out, so can you just have those sessions?" You see teams doing it now when you go in a circle. There's one in the middle or two in the middle, and you keep the ball away from the ones in the middle. We always used to say to Dave, well, you're strong and fit in here, but come out here and put... Even, I don't think he could even lace his boots up on the correct feet. So that's the problem, is if you put him on a pitch with a ball, he'd fall well short. Not so great at the rondos. Uh, the what? That's what, what you just described as a rondo. 
a rondo. Yeah. Oh my god. Explain explain a bit more. <laughs> it's bad enough that he was being that the janitor was running rings around him in the gym. You're now schooling him on football training What's techniques. Rondos. <laughs> That's for another day. Thanks, Andrew. Don't forget how you can What's get in rondos? touch with the podcast. Tell me. What is rondos? <laughs> Tell me now. You've just broken my table. Tell me. Rondos are yeah. the game where you've got one or two in inside. It's piggy in the middle. Who's told you this? You've never played it yourself. Rondos are what? Who told you that? Pep loves doing them. Who told you that? He'll, he'll, he pretty much never has a training Who session without rondos. Who told you that? Fact. It's not. He must have found it somewhere. Or someone told you. Pep didn't tell you. Read it in a book somewhere. Rondos. What a load of piggy in the middle. Fair enough. Rondos. What a load of rubbish. You've just spent quite a lot of time talking about how uninformed pundits yes. are the scourge. Go to VAR. Go to VAR. Broadcasting world. And you're telling me, on provision of a fact about something being called rondos, no, you I'm are not, dismissing. I'm me. not dismissing the facts. I'm f- how did you find this out? I want to know where you got this from. And you just come to terms with the fact the fact you now have blonde hair. And I don't have idiot. blonde hair, I have lemon hair. A rondo yes. is a type of game similar to keep away that is used as a in a training is used as a training drill in association football slash soccer. I'm not debating that. I'm debating how you found out it was called that because you I've seen you play football. <laughs> It's, it's, oh, you're like a jelly in a football kit. There's no way you would know that terminology. Dutch player and coach Johan Cruyff, who implemented the rondo at Barcelona, described the drill as everything that goes on in a match, except shooting, you can do in a rondo. Well, I can't argue with that. At Setpiece Menu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com if you would like to provide Mr. Andy Hinchcliffe with any information that he currently doesn't have, which, judging by the decision that he made on his hair, is quite considerable. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. A thank you to Steve, to Andy and, of course, Rory, who at this point is somewhere in the air, probably. And thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Setpiece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Hang on, you having, you having a dig at my hair? No one had a go at Phil Neville Street's hair. That's that because every, Everybody had a go at Phil Neville Street. And that was no, 15 didn't, years Phil. ago. That was 15 years ago. You're yeah, doing it at the age comes of around you. Oh, come 49 on. 49 years old. Why are you gesturing with your hands like that? Because it's baffling. You like it. I bet when I leave these premises, you go, actually, it looked pretty darn good. Stephen, what happened when Chinch arrived and I looked out the window? You said, oh my God, he's got blonde hair. It's not blonde hair, though, is it? It's not blonde hair, is it? It's lemon streaks. (laughs) 